0: Week, um, several of you, about twenty-five of you, were out yesterday, uh, and we went over to Kingdom House, um, which was this. Uh, here's 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 us yesterday. <laughs> uh, Kingdom House. Uh, it, if if you were here, I believe it was last week. Uh, one of their volunteer coordinators came and talked about what they do. They're a they're a great organization. They do a lot of work in the community, helping uh, folks that are having you know, struggling financially and that sort of thing, and we went out, and um, we, they put us to work, highly skilled labor. For example, um, we went in the food pantry, stocked the food pantry, then we did some gardening, uh, and we hung from a tree. Is, is uh, Jordan here today? No, but he was, very, uh, he was very athletic out there and impressed a lot of people. Did you see that, Jeremy? That's your son. Um, and then we also uh, did some painting, um, here I am getting instructions from Connie. Thank you, Connie. Um, anyway, it was a great event, and so uh, it, it was just a great opportunity for us to take our first step out into the community and do some, do some good work for folks that, that need some help. Um, tonight, I wanted to remind you that we're having a root beer float social event uh, over at Fitz's, so if you don't know where Fitz's is, if you walk out the front door here of the theater, take a left, and walk that way. It'll be on the other side of the street once you get about, oh, half a mile down. Um, we're going to get together at 6 o'clock tonight and um, uh, and just have an opportunity to kind of get some interaction and get to know one another and um, start mingling and, and building community and forming relationships and doing everything that uh, that we like to do here uh, at church. So um, those are the announcements. Um I wanted to, as you know, we've been, we've been hammering through the book of Mark. Um, last week we wrapped up chapter one, uh, and this week we start on chapter two. Um, <clears throat> before we jump right in, though, I wanted to uh, tell you a, a little story, and it will be shorter than last week, I assure you. Um, uh, so there's a program, a radio program called This American Life, and I like This American Life. They do stories that are, surround a particular theme. And they did uh, an episode, I don't know, it's probably been a couple years ago, but the theme was Big Break, My Big Break. And it was all about people who thought that they were getting the big break of their life, and things didn't go exactly as they planned. Um, The story that I particularly liked was about a couple called Charlie Brill and Mitzi McCall. Uh, Charlie, this is Charlie and, and Mitzi. Uh, Charlie Brill and Missy McCall, they were a little comedy duo back in the 1960s, and they lived out in L.A., and they were going around to, you know, they'd go around to nightclubs, and they'd do their little act, and it was a little bit corny, you know, it was sketch comedy. Um, But, you know, they would get a few laughs, and they were making a living at it. You know, they weren't doing great, but they were making a living. Uh, Pounding away in L.A., um, they got a call one afternoon from their agent, and he said, listen, uh, amazing opportunity has arisen. I just booked you on the Ed Sullivan Show. Now, the Ed Sullivan Show is, was the biggest possible show that you could possibly get on if you're an entertainer back in the 1960s. It's David Letterman, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien wrapped into one. It's like if you get on the Ed Sullivan Show, you are set. So they, of course, are ecstatic and they start working up their act. Um, they go into the little nightclubs there in L.A., and they're working out the act, and people are laughing. They're getting it all dialed in. It's just its hilarious. They, they're so thrilled because this is their big break. They're going to make it huge. This is going to like put them on the national spotlight. So they get on a plane, fly to the Ed Sullivan Theater. Get to the Ed Sullivan Theater. Uh, first of all, they the theater is surrounded by people. I mean, it's just surrounded by people and packed, mobs of people, and they're going, um you know, wow, this is amazing. Like, this is going to be huge. Like, everyone is going to really love us. Uh, they get to the theater. They start practicing their act. Um, and Ed Sullivan calls him into the office, and he says, hey, you know, I saw your little dress rehearsal you did just a minute ago. And he goes, you know, I, I wanted to let you know that the audience that, you're ha- that we're going to have tonight is a less sophisticated audience than what you might normally have. It's going to be mostly 14- and 15-year-old girls in the audience. So if you could, like, make your act just a little more... You know, teenage friendly, that would be great. And they're going, like, what, you know, they're used to doing cocktail hours, you know, out in LA. So they're going, okay, uh, that's fine, we can do that. So they kind of make their act, they try to, they're up in their dressing room and trying to work on their act. In fact, a little side note is a guy comes in uh, into their dressing room and he's got a funny accent and he's wearing like granny glasses and he asks them to buy him a Coke and they're trying to do their rehearsal, but they buy this guy a Coke. Um, you'll find out who the guy is in a minute. but uh, So they, they, they practice their act. They get ready to go down to perform their act for, uh, you know, for the show. This is what the audience looks like. Okay, so, you've got, so this is what the audience looks like when they come down. Now, what they didn't know is that they weren't the lead performers that night. They were opening for a little quartet that you might be familiar with, the Beatles. Uh, This was the Beatles' debut in the United States, and mobs of teenagers were at the theater, and the last thing that these teenagers wanted to hear was the Brill and McCall sketch comedy hour. Uh, They wanted the Beatles and so Brill and McCall, they go on stage and literally uh, they couldn't even hear each other giving their lines to one another because because the audience was the one <laughs> was that going, we want the Beatles. Um, so what they thought was going to be the big break of their career, what they thought they absolutely wanted turned out to be a train wreck for them. Apparently they went back to to LA. And it was embarrassing because you know, they're on TV and it's clear that everyone, everyone wants them off stage. It was the biggest night in television, I think, to date. There were uh, approximately 40% of the United States was watching TV that night. And every single one of them could not wait until Brill and Nicole got off stage so that the Beatles could come on. Uh, so that was an example of wanting something and then finding out that what you wanted might not be what you needed. Uh, what you needed might be something very different than what you wanted. Um, if you'll recall, last week we talked about, um, just, just so, to recap, we've, we've been in the book of Mark. We, we, Jesus, we, we met Jesus, we had his, he was baptized, he went out into the desert, he fasted, uh, and he came into Capernaum, started preaching... Um, and then started healing people. And last week, if you recall, he reached out and healed a leper. And there's the great story of him reaching out and grabbing this leper and this man who hasn't been touched in years, puts his arm around him, heals him, and uh, and then retreats back into the desert. So we're going to jump into Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two is is a great story about someone who comes to Jesus wanting something, and finding out that what he wanted though good was not what he absolutely needed. Um, we'll go to uh, Mark chapter two. So this is, remember Jesus retreated into the desert because he, the crowds were so pressing that he literally could not, uh, could not handle, could not stay there. Um, went out into the desert. So he came back when he entered Capernaum again, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now people think that, um, that this reference to home is probably a reference back to Simon and Andrew's house. And remember last time that he was in Capernaum, he was staying at their house and he healed Peter's uh, mother-in-law. And we remember we said that's a very good idea if you're going to ask someone to follow you to their death, you should at least get in good with their wife by healing their mother-in-law. So, um, so uh, Anyway, so he comes back. He's at their home. So many people had gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. So people had Heard that he was here. They could not wait until he went to the synagogue to to speak. They literally came out from everywhere and surrounded the house. Uh, And he was speaking the message to them. Now, Mark, as we talked about, Mark is so intent on giving us the action, what happened, what Jesus did, that he doesn't always give us the content of what Jesus said. But we'll get into that in um, in another gospel. But it just says that he was speaking the message to him. And what we know about the message is that Jesus was saying, his, his message that he taught over and over was, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. Everything has changed. And uh, turn from your ways and follow me. That was his message that he preached over and over and over again. Um, then he came, to, uh, and he was speaking the message to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Um, This is a fascinating passage. Uh, Four men and and, and, uh, two of the other Gospels actually describe this event as well. But four men came bringing one of their friends who was paralyzed. We don't know why he was paralyzed. We don't know the relationship between the paralyzed man and his friends. Um, But we do know that they, they came carrying him through the streets and brought him to Jesus. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd... They removed the roof above where he was. What they did was, uh, in these old, um, in these houses in, in ancient Israel, they had a side steps up the side of the house, and then there was a roof terrace where people would have dinner and and stay on the roof. These guys couldn't get in the door. They couldn't get into where Jesus was, so they went up the side um, of the house and literally started digging through the roof. It's it's unclear what the roof was made of, whether it was made of tile. Or, you know, branches and, and, and wood. But nonetheless, they start digging through the roof um, to, to break through to where Jesus was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the stretcher on which the paralytic was laying. I, I want to just sort of Im- imagine for a moment what it was like. You know, Jesus is down here in the living room of his buddy Simon's house and preaching And people start digging through the roof. Uh, Plaster or tile or dirt is coming through. And they're literally digging their way into the roof. Um, This is when Peter probably freaks out a little bit and says, hey, um, some guys are digging through my roof. And Jesus says, I'm a carpenter. Don't worry about it. I got it covered. (laughs) So sorry about that. Just had to uh, throw that in another uh, amazing part about that passage and um, um, one of the members of our launch team actually uh, uh, Susan said that it would be alright for me to share this um, the the portion about his friends carrying him to to be healed by Jesus first of all it demonstrated an incredible amount of faith on their part um, uh, but but um, Susan's, uh, Susan's husband, of, of they, they were married and had kids, and he uh, was diagnosed with a terminal cancer, and he uh, eventually died from the cancer. But before he did, he got up at their church and preached on or spoke on this passage and basically said, for him, the four men carrying the man on the stretcher represented the church. It represented the community of people that will come together during times of trouble, during difficult and challenging times, and they'll they'll bind together to lift someone, to bring someone, to encourage someone uh, to come to Christ, where they can where they can find healing and they can find restoration. I thought that was a beautiful, um, beautiful uh, illustration of what's happening here. Um, Verse five, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. A couple of things I want to point out here very quickly. First is we get this we get this vision of Jesus again as a compassionate, personable man. Remember when, when he healed the leper last time, the, the, Mark adds the little detail that wasn't necessary to the story, but he adds a little detail that Jesus reached out and touched this leper. And, and, you know, again, this was a man that hadn't been touched for years. No one would touch him. He was shunned. He was not allowed to be uh, in, the, in the public eye. He was not allowed to be around family or friends or anyone. Jesus reached out and touched him. In this case, Jesus calls him son. He just, he just, again, he sort of exhibits uh, um, this compassionate side of himself where he is reaching out and, and making the man feel comfortable, warm, welcomed, and loved. Um, but this is the interesting part. Rather than say, Son, be healed, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a huge deal. For a few reasons. One is, it's the first time we've seen him do this in Mark. We've seen him preach, and we've seen him heal. We haven't seen him forgive anyone for anything. Uh, This is the first time in the book of Mark where Jesus does something that is, well, you'll see what happens. Immediately, um, some of the scribes were sitting there, when Jesus said this, thinking to themselves. They didn't say it out loud. They thought to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone so they're right okay first of all the scribes get a get a bad rap in the New Testament because what they were they were basically scribes whenever the New Testament talks about scribes're talking about they were kind of like lawyers of the day for one thing they were scriveners so they actually literally wrote down the, the uh, they would transcribe the, the passages but they were also interpreters. Of the Bible, they were lawyers, and lawyers get a bad rap, and that's not fair. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so they they were scribes. Um, let me give you just a little uh, a little uh, uh, example of what what scribes would do. So when they did transcribe something from one scroll to the next, here were the rules: they could only use clean animal skins to write on. Uh, uh, and they could only use clean animal skins to bind the manuscript that they wrote on. Each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. Okay, so no more than 48, no less than 60. The ink had to be black and it had to be made out of a very special recipe. Uh, they had to say each word aloud while they were writing it. Now, sometimes I do that, but... Uh, I'm just trying to sound it out, but they had to—they had to literally say each word out loud as they were writing it. Uh, This is interesting. They must—they had to wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the holy name of God, Yahweh. Remember, we discussed that word our first Sunday. That is my as my observant, conservative Jewish friend says the Y word. You just don't say it. It's that holy. They had to wash their. They had to wash their uh, bodies every time they wrote that word. Um, their manuscript script had to be reviewed thirty days uh, af- within thirty days, and if there were three errors, um, then the entire manuscript had to be redone. The letters, words, and paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph word and letter must correspond to those of the original document. Do you think these guys were detail-oriented? The documents could be stored only in sacred places, and no document containing God's word could be destroyed, so they were all stored or buried. So, I mean, you know, in reality, they were taking this job very seriously. Uh, But what happens throughout the New Testament is that the scribes, in concentrating on the details, sometimes lose the focus of the big picture. And so there's always this sort of back and forth between Jesus and the scribes because the scribes are going, now, hold on, hold on a second. And Jesus is saying, look, this is, this is, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm called to do. And this is the meaning behind what I'm doing. Um, and they're very, very interested in the details. So this is the first time that Jesus gets any pushback. You know, In the book of Mark, every, up to this point, everybody's been saying, wow, he preaches with such authority. He's so fantastic and the crowds come out and everybody loves him and he's just great. This is the first time that anybody goes, now hold on a second. Hold on a second. What do you think you're doing? And they don't say it out loud but they say it in their hearts. Um, they, the claim is that he's committing blasphemy and blasphemy could be committed in three ways. One is you, you, you uh, delete an attribute of God that God actually possesses. So you could, you could commit blasphemy by saying God is not loving. You know, But that's an attribute that God has and if you delete that attribute, that's blasphemy. Giving an attribute to God that he doesn't have is also blasphemy. Uh, so if you say God is um, ornery, okay, then that's blasphemy because that's an attribute that God does not have. Um, the third way you can commit blasphemy is to do something that, or, or claim that you can do something that you can't do because only God can do it. And that's the category that that the scribes are worried about with Jesus Because they're saying Who can forgive sins but God alone And we all know that sort of intuitively That only the person against whom a harm is committed Can forgive the harm, correct? So if, you know, if three guys get in a fight If, uh, you know, the first guy hits the second guy And the third guy comes up to the first guy and says You're forgiven You're forgiven for hitting him Well, you can't really do that You know, second guy is going to get up and go You can't you can't forgive him. Only I could forgive him. He hit me. Um, Jameson, and I, I, I hope he's not scarred for life because I'm, I'm, like, using him in every sermon so far. But he does this thing. And you remember last, last week, I think, I told you. He doesn't, he hadn't learned how to hide his sins, you know. So he'll come in and he'll say, Mom, you know, Lincoln's crying. And Rebecca will say, why is Lincoln crying? Because I hit him over the head with my fire truck. And you go, wow, oh, okay, um. Well, the other thing he does, he tags on to that. After he says, "Because I hit him over the head with my fire truck," he goes, "But that's okay." He forgives himself. He said, "That's okay." It's like, no, no, it's not, son. You know, you can't, you can't forgive. Like, you're just way ahead of the game here. Eventually, it'll be okay, but it's not right now because you got to make up and you got you to. Gotta, there's a lot of stuff that needs to go on before that's okay. He's just jumped to the. And that's okay. So, you know, only the person against, you know, who is aggrieved can forgive the sin. And and that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I can forgive sins because Jesus is claiming to be divine. And any sin that is committed is committed against God. Uh, and Jesus is saying, so your sins, I can forgive them because they're against me. Um, so if he's not the son of God, he is absolutely committing blasphemy. But if in fact he is, then he has every right to say that. Um, So Jesus knows what they're reasoning in their hearts. uh, And he says to them a very paradoxical question, which is still strange and paradoxical today. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins uh, son, your sins are forgive. Uh, sorry, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get, pick up your stretcher and walk. So that's a very difficult question to to answer, because it's equally easy to say either one, right? You can say either one equally easily. You can't, you know, if it comes to demonstrating it, it's almost easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can tell if you actually did it or not, right? Someone can say your sins are forgiven and then that's it. I mean, you can't tell. But if you say to someone, pick up your bed and walk and they're paralyzed and they don't do it, well then it, it demonstrates that you don't have the power to do that. So, but on the other hand, to the scribes, the scribes didn't have a problem with Jesus healing people. Up to this point, they're saying, no problem. We're, we're, this, is, this is a wonderful thing that you're going around healing people. But to say... Your sins are forgiven. We don't, we don't like that. Um, so what Jesus does is he resolves the, the paradox and he says, but so you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately, the man got up, picked up the stretcher and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So if we go back to the, 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 the passage where it says, To show you that the Son of Man has authority. Remember, we talked about this, and this keeps coming up in the book of Mark. That word authority is, the Greek word is exousia, E X O U S I A. X means out of, you know, uh, like extract And usia means self or being. And so Jesus keeps saying, I am doing this out of myself. I'm doing this out of my own, by my own authority. I'm doing this out of myself. Um, And so he over and over and over keeps demonstrating that he has got authority to do this on the earth. Um, So, uh, and, and then of course the man gets up, his four friends that carried him there. I mean, I like to imagine that these guys are just going to tear down through the streets of Capernaum and are having an awesome time. It's not clear how the man got paralyzed. Um, it could have happened, you know, just trauma to the nervous system or it could have happened by disease or something like that. But I, I, I like to imagine these guys, um, his four friends and him, you know, maybe something happened. You know, maybe they were swimming in the Galilee and, and, he, and he, you know, jumped off a rock and, and was paralyzed or something. But, you know, it's, it's it's amazing to think of these four guys, four of whom carried one guy in to see Jesus. And uh, afterwards, the five of them are trucking down the street. You know, the mat is somewhere left behind. Um, so there are three things that... that we can draw out of this passage. There are many, many more, but there are three things that I'm going to just focus on very briefly. Um, One is God knows what you want. God knows what you want. Jesus was not confused when the paralyzed man came and uh, it was pretty clear that the paralyzed man wanted healing. Um, The other day, uh, and this, I promise, is my last story about Jameson today, but uh, the other day, There was a box of Oreos up on our landing, on our second floor, a box of Oreos. And Jameson knows that he's not allowed to have Oreos unless he does something special. Um, um, And he's being potty trained, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, So he sees this box of Oreos, and he knows he's not allowed to eat them. Um, And he's with my wife, and he goes up to my wife, and he says, Mommy, can you please go away so I can eat the box of Oreos? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's not how, that's not very sneaky, son. Um, you know, he's, this is us to God. We are as transparent as a little boy who literally asks for what he wants. Um, there are so many things in life that we want. If we drill down and think about our desires, um, what what are just sort of some of the general desires that we want? I've got a few little images here just for fun. You know, we like nice cars, a Bentley. How about a nice house? Everybody wants a nice house. People want money. People want fame. There's Brad and Angelina. Uh, you know, we like to indulge ourselves, maybe a little chocolate cake every now and then. Uh, and then we have things that we want that are that are actually good things. Okay, uh, health and fitness. You know, we we want to be healthy. We want this is Usain Bolt, by the way. If you don't know him, he's the fastest human being on the planet. Um, Usain Bolt. If you've ever seen him run, he runs. I mean, he runs, and then ten y- yards before the, you know, the, the tape, he kind of lets up and starts jogging, and people are still like twenty yards behind, and still breaks the world records. He's amazing. So we want, but but we want to be we want to be healthy. We might want relationships, love. We may want, you know, we, we seek that. Um, maybe we want family or children. You know, so there are things that we want that are good things. It's not that we, you know, it's not that it's bad that we want them. But they are, what Jesus is saying in this passage is those things that we want are the superficial. They're, they're superficial things. They're good and they're valuable. But they're not the real thing. The real thing underneath all of that is what I want you to want, Jesus is saying. So you come in, you want healing for your body, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Um, Tim Keller, who I like to, to listen to, he says that the main problem in a person's life is not their suffering, it's their sin. So, Jesus is saying that this man is not going deep enough by asking Jesus for healing because Jesus can give him something much, much more than healing. The roots of the discontent of the human heart go deeper than the person suffering, Tim Keller says. Um, So, God knows what you want, but God also knows what you need. Um, My brother in law is a doctor, and he's a family practice guy, and and he's out in Idaho now. He has patients that come to him, and they'll say, Doc, I need, and they'll just list off the medicine. They they, they list off the medicines that they want. They've already diagnosed themselves, and they've already got the prognosis, and they've already got the medicine that they figured it out on WebEx or MedEx or whatever it is online that you go to. And they've got it all dialed in. And so, basically, they come to him, and they think of him as more a dispensary of medicine, than as a practitioner of medicine, you know? So, you know, it's a, it's a struggle for him because what he wants to go, what he wants to say is, no, that's not what you need. I'm gonna tell you what you need. And ultimately, sometimes he has to do that. And, you know, people get upset. They, they, they've got it all figured out. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a fine balance between, between um, you know, letting people tell you what they want and as a doctor, he's got an obligation and responsibility to give them what they need. Um, if we accept that there is an all-knowing God and that all-knowing God loves us and wants the best for us, then we have to concede to some extent that what we want might not always be exactly what we need. God, God knows not only what we want, but he knows what we need. Um, and I put that little lyric in your bulletin by the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Um, and the third thing is that, so God knows what you want, God knows what you need. At the What God is trying to do, God wants you to want what you need. That's ultimately what he is trying to get at. He wants you to drill down beyond the suffering, beyond the paralysis, beyond the desire for wealth, fame, money, power, whatever. And he wants you to drill down to what he can offer you that is greater than, more important than, and deeper than all of those things. Um, You know, there's uh, there's a song from the 80s or 70s. I want you to want me. You know, I need you to need me. I'd love you to love me. I'm begging you to beg me. you remember that song? Um Didn't I See You Crying? You know. Uh but yeah <laughs> No. Okay, yeah, strike that up, man. Let's no, I'm just kidding. Um, um you know, we we find this in our own lives, if you know, when you fall in love, you suddenly not only want something, you or someone You want that someone To want you So you want to do something You want to be able to get inside Of their head and make them Want you in the same way that you Want them Right? I'm not talking from Experience. No, I'm just kidding I am. I I mean when I started pursuing Rebecca You know, I I was a bachelor For a long time, okay But when the lights came on And I decided it's time to Settle down, I mean it, I was a I was very focused, like a laser beam, and I pursued her vigorously, and what I wanted was for her to want me the way that I wanted her, so we could just get this over with and get married that 's what I wanted and i I stomped on the gas, I tried to make that happen I tried to make her want me the way that I wanted her um, and it ultimately worked, <laughs> but but it didn't work initially, you know. Um, we, we started dating in January, and I think I proposed in March or February, and I wanted to get married in May. So um, she put the brakes on that, and we, we calmed down and mellowed out, and we got married a year later, which was very respectable, I think. Um, but... God wants us to want what we need, okay? He wants us to, to, to desire him, to desire what we really need deep down in our heart. Um, but he's, he is, you know, he, he's, not, he's not forcing it on us necessarily. He's, he's, he's giving us some room to reach out to him. Um, what's interesting about this paralytic man is that he actually didn't ask to be forgiven and his uh, friends didn't ask that the man be forgiven um, and so it's sort of an interesting conundrum in the Bible because generally when a person wants to be you know, when, whenever Jesus forgives someone it's because they've asked in this case uh, Jesus forgives the man without him asking um, And so some scholars would say, well, there must have been some sort of an impulse in the man's heart that Jesus reacted to, um, because, uh, as a demonstration of Jesus's grace, he will, if you have a flicker of a desire, a flicker of a hope within yourself for God, God will be aggressive with his grace and he will reach out to you and he will give you what you need, um, We've all been, at some point in our lives, probably each character that we read about here, we've probably all been, at some point, the man on the mat. There's almost certainly been occasions where each one of us has needed something from God. There's probably been occasions where we have been supportive of someone else who desperately needed some, something from God. And there's probably been occasions where we, like the scribes, sort of sit back and kind of judge what's going on in someone else's life and, and, and trying to determine whether or not God really has the authority to do what he says he, he does. Um, but I want to encourage each and every one of us today to open our hearts, just a little flicker, open our hearts just a little bit to the possibility that God will extend his grace to us and give us what we deeply, deeply need. It doesn't mean that, you know, like I said, the man on the mat didn't, uh, didn't you know, rush after Jesus and say, please forgive me, please forgive me. He just apparently had enough of his heart open. You know, Jesus says that these guys all had faith. Um, and these guys had just enough faith, apparently, to open their hearts just a little bit and let God do what He does, and that is reach in, restore, love them, uh, and 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 rejuvenate this man, cleanse him, and set him on the right path, as well as giving him what he wanted. Now, the Brill and McCall story. So they they came off the Ed Sullivan show. McCall called her mom to get some. Sympathy. Her mom screened the call. Mom's not even answering the call when they got off the show. Uh, Their agent didn't talk to them for six months. They were pariah. They were shunned. Nobody in the comedy community could look at them. People would avert their eyes when they came walking uh, into the comedy club. But long after the Beatles broke up, long after Wings broke up, any wings there's a couple of wings fans uh, Brill and McCall are still together and their their act now is telling this story telling the story about the time they got on the Ed Sullivan show for their big break and they blew it and what they thought they wanted was not what they needed and here they are all of these years later you know with with an, with actually a career and a relationship and things that are much, much deeper than making your big break on the Ed Sullivan show. So I just want to encourage you all today um, as we close to open up your heart and open up your heart to the possibility that Jesus knows you, knows what you want, knows what you need and will give you the deepest, deepest desires of your heart. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of the uh, paralyzed man who reached out with faith. With his friends surrounding him, his community of people around him. uh, And reached down to you. Lowered himself through the roof to come after you. And we thank you. That you reached out to him, Lord, and that even when he uh, was seeking something important but superficial, you gave him something deep and eternal, as well as giving him the healing that he sought. Lord, we ask you to be with us this week. We ask you to uh, strengthen our hearts, encourage us, and be with us, Lord. And ask us, uh, help us to ask you for not what it is that we want, but for what it is that we really need from you, we believe that you'll give it to us in Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to take just a.